I'm Amanda Wagner, a business strategist, coach, and professional speaker. And I'm Liz Pittman, a digital communications specialist. The Amanda Wagner podcast is the place for ambitious leaders and entrepreneurs who are done shopping for shortcuts, no longer waiting for an invitation to do what they want, and are ready to claim their spotlight. On this podcast, we talk about the challenges and triumphs of ambition and bravery, living thoughtfully and strategically in a noisy world, and share our experiences as entrepreneurs with big ambition. In this episode, we jam on how our desire to help people and our desire to be liked can get messy. We discuss where we have gone wrong in trying to do it all and how we're doing it differently now. And we share five reasons you do not want to be for everyone anyway. And in WWAWD, or What Would Amanda Wagner Do? We answer Andrea's question about bringing magic back to the home workspace. Oh, exciting, very topical. We want to be good at what we do. We want to help others, and often we want to be liked. One thing I know about this community is that I am not the only people pleaser in the bunch. I hear this a lot. These three things, wanting to be good at what we do, wanting to help people, and wanting to be liked, often mean that we put ourselves out there and we try to build a community. And especially if you are in a new leadership role or running your own business, you feel pressure to contort yourself or what you offer to please others. I am guilty of this. I look back at some of my early proposals and I see that I was adding more, more, more in an effort to prove that I can do it all, to prove that I was worth the money and that I was willing to do whatever this client wanted simply so that they could hire me. Plus, when you go above and beyond, people like you, right? That's one of the byproducts of doing it all. After a while, I started to realize that while I was doing more, I was missing out on a few really important things. First, was the more that I was offering or doing really something that I should be spending time on? For example, if I'm a skilled speaker, strategist, and trainer, should I be offering to help someone organize their storage space in their retail store? Second, were any of the pieces of the more things that I was doing, did I want to be known for any of them? If I want to be known for delivering engaging talks and lighting up an audience and connecting ambitious people, do I want someone to refer to me as somebody who takes excellent notes? And third, if I'm talking to everyone and trying to get everyone on my team or in my community, am I specialized enough? Or am I just blending in? The old marketing adage, if you're speaking to everyone, you're speaking to nobody, continues to haunt me. Liz, are there any particular times or situations where you try to do more or offer more? And follow up, how has it gone for you? It's so funny that you mentioned looking at old proposals, uh, because when I was doing my prep for this episode, I really think back to a time or two early on when I was doing my freelance work where I got involved in a project where I had enough of the skill set required or enough of an understanding on the subject that I could do the work, but it wasn't my jam. And I ended up not loving the work. And it's funny how those jobs are the ones that end up on the bottom of your to-do list day after day because you've signed up to do them, but it's actually not what you want to do. So yeah, so I've, I've, learned from that. And I've 
kind of refined what I offer and I recognize how I feel when I'm up to my eyeballs in something that's out of scope for me or isn't serving me or isn't the reason why I do what I do. But it's so funny that you mentioned old proposals because I'm scared to go look at old proposals because it's like looking at like old yearbook photos, you know, like cringeworthy look through your fingers sort of thing, <laughs> like cover your eyes and look through your fingers. Yeah. Uh, so I don't have specific examples, but I know that feeling big time that you dove into something that you probably shouldn't have. And, it's, and then you don't end up loving what you're doing or how you feel about it. Yes, exactly. And you're right about it sliding to the bottom of the to-do list. It took me a lot of time, but I realized that the work that wasn't really me or true to what I wanted to do, what, what I wanted to be known for, it was also the work that I was the most insecure about. It was the work I would dread the most. I would fret over it. I would take far too long. And you're right. I would procrastinate a ton. It would be the last thing that I wanted to do. I also realized that if I want to be known as a speaker and business strategist, why would I put my time and energy into something that doesn't contribute to these ambitions? Just because I can do it doesn't mean it's where my time is best spent. I've also realized, and this is, this is pretty new, I would say within the last six months, I laugh at myself saying this because I think it's going to be this type of statement that people go, uh, of course, Amanda, I am not for everyone. <laughs> I have realized that I am not the person for everyone and that this is a good thing. I do my best work with people who are feisty and ambitious, and it is not my best work when people who show up in my community or in my Zoom room, when they say, I don't know. I don't really care about growing my business. Being a leader isn't that important to me. It's like pulling teeth for me to quickly figure out and recalibrate the way that I talk to people and the suggestions that I make and the activities we do, because that's not where I specialized. Perhaps most importantly and most challengingly, my goal in life is not to be the most liked. I feel like this will shock the people closest to me. Um, yeah, I want to be liked, but I don't want it above everything else. And I will always care what people think. And as much as I care what people think, and as much as I want people to care for me and like me, it is not my end goal. I want to help ambitious people get what they want. And I want to share my words, my experiences, and my ideas. I want that more than I want to be liked. I want to be more than kind. LP, you are similar to me. You have some, some people-pleasing moments. How do you separate wanting to be liked from wanting to do great work and be known for something? I think I've gotten better at this. We're to the, I'm just at the point now where I just, I just do separate them. I like being liked, but I do great work. And I don't think that the two necessarily have to go hand in hand. Where I struggle with this is when I have clients who are also my friends. Uh-oh. Like, like you. <laughs> I have a cup. I don't have a ton of clients where I'm tight with them, just you and one other. And it's not usually a problem for me, except for when I make an error which I have an example. 
I put a graphic up on the Amanda Wagner Instagram this week with a typo right in the middle of the graphic. Didn't realize it was there, was not ideal, was promoting something with incorrect information. I didn't catch my own error. Amanda told me about the error. And then not only did I feel shitty, first of all, mistakes happen. I don't make mistakes very often, but they do happen. But I felt shitty as a digital communicator. And then I felt shitty because I let down my friend. So that is where the being liked really comes into play for me is when I have kind of a dual relationship with the client. Again, Amanda and like one other <laughs> is what this is like for me for work. But that's where I really feel this come in uh, is like, oh shit, now she's upset with me because I screwed this thing up. But also, can I still talk to her as my friend in a few minutes? Or is she still upset about the work? And I know you weren't upset, but you know, you're, you understand the thought process here, right? I absolutely do. And the funny thing is that it wasn't even me who noticed. It was someone else who noticed and sent me a text and said, hey, this post says this, and I think that's wrong. My instant thought, and I told this friend this was, oh, Liz is going to feel like shit. I didn't I want to tell mistakes. you. We are humans. We make mistakes. You are not out to get me. You are mm -hmm. one of the most professional and detail-oriented people I've ever worked with. This is not intentional. We are humans and we make mistakes. But you're right. When there's this added level of this relationship, it was stressful to even say like, oh, I noticed a mistake because I knew how much you would internalize it. And yes, do we just go back to being friends after that? Absolutely. So that is an instance where I have a really tough time separating being liked and doing great work. With ordinary clients, I really don't care about their perceptions of me. I'm not hired to be their friend. I'm hired to do my work and do a good job at it. So besides the clients that I happen to have a personal relationship with, I don't find it to be as much of an issue because it's like, you hired me. I'm going to do what I do now. Let me do it. Right. Um, but yeah, when I have, when I have pals where I feel like it, it impacts other facets of the relationship, that's where it's more tricky for me to separate it. Yeah. Fair enough. And I think there's something to be said for wanting to please people and wanting to do great work, but also having that boundary of here is what I agreed to do. I am delivering on it. And now I I'm reaching the place where you're at, where I can say, here's what I'm best at. Here's what's in the contract. Here are the deliverables. I did exactly what I said I was going to do. That takes practice. It takes extra work to go. I do not have to go above and beyond in every single way just to prove that I'm good. They already know I'm good because they hired me. And this is a transaction. I do the work and they give me the money. Between Liz and my partner, I am often compared to Michael Scott from The Office, and there are two distinct moments that come up here as far as wanting to be liked. There is a video of Michael Scott as a child, and he says, I want to have a hundred kids so I can have a hundred friends. And Robin always laughs at me because he says, that's you. And there's another moment where, some, where Dwight asks Ryan Howard, what is Michael Scott's greatest fear? And Ryan stops and he looks at the camera and he says, loneliness. 
And whenever we watch that episode, Robin just looks at me with this big smile because he knows how much I want to be liked. And part of building this brand and sharing the podcast and Instagram, one of my my core ways of, of thinking and writing copy is that I want people who read this and who listen to the podcast to listen and go, I think we could be friends, right? Every single person who listens to this one day when we are allowed, I'm like, let's hang out on a patio because clearly there's something that ties us together. And yet I also know that that is adding a layer of complexity. It adds that layer of friendship. And I am guilty of my clients become my friends, but also my friends become my clients because I jump into work mode really quickly. So I'm trying to see this as, as a strength and not a weakness, but it definitely reminds me that I don't have to be for everyone and that boundaries matter for a reason. I've had the odd strategy session with somebody who doesn't want more, with somebody who isn't interested in exploring what could happen if they decided to level up. Those sessions are killer for both of us. It's like pulling teeth for me. And there on the other end, I imagine thinking, why is this lady running me through this really hard exercise when it's not what I want? I imagine that they leave thinking they didn't get what they needed. And I leave feeling like I wasn't able to support them. Those are the days that I don't ask for a testimonial. So I'm making it my mission to share my time with people that I want to work with and that put me in a position where I can do my best work and support them on what they want. And yes, I know this is a luxury. Me three years ago could not have said that. Three years ago, I will would have and did take any single opportunity that came my way. Financially, I needed it. To build credibility, I needed it. I would not be in a position to say so assertively what I do and how I do my best work without having worked with a little bit of everything. I know that is a luxury and it is something that I value so very much. I have spent time connecting with people and building relationships with people that light me up and I give them my A game to make sure that I am always delivering. So it's a luxury, but it's also a necessity especially as time goes on. We do our best work when we are matched with the right people. LP, when or with whom do you do your best work? I do my best work when I am collaborating with or working for someone who, one, appreciates my expertise, two, understands the importance of what we're doing, and most importantly, they trust me. The relationships I have with clients are a little bit different than the relationships you have with clients because you're very much guiding them through the work that they need to do. For me, I'm grabbing the keys and acting as them often on social. You know, you're not lit up when people are very meh, like not super amped about growing their business or or whatever those goals would be. Me too, but also the people I don't do my best work are the people who are too. And I don't want to say enthusiastic, but are so in there that it's micromanager level. If I feel like I'm constantly looking over my shoulder or worrying about what they're going to think about my deliverables, that's taking up valuable brain space. 
I do really good work and it's not going to serve me to have to be constantly fretting about, does this person think it's good work? Because it is good work. So I work best with people who tell me what I need to do and then just let me do it. Micromanagers like exit stage left, please. I'm not interested in working with micromanagers. We've all worked with micromanagers. They're the worst. And if that person wants to be involved in the process so badly, they can do it themselves. And that's a difficult thing to kind of suss out before you start a contract, unfortunately. I, we've talked about gut feelings on the podcast before. I have good guts. Every once in a while, I'll get the gut feeling as part of an initial conversation. And again, I have the luxury of saying no to work. Uh, so guts comes into that, but I do my best work when I have people who appreciate and trust me. This reminds me of a post from Natasia Designs on Instagram. She says, restaurants give you the final dish, not the dish, the recipe, and the ingredients. And in your case, it's you don't want to show people how the sausage is made. You want people who trust you and know that the final product is going to deliver the results that you help them expect that you help them anticipate and that you work for. And so you're right. My work is a little bit different where it's, it's not as much take the reins. It's very much a, a guide on the side experience, but I know now that I do my best work with clients and with people who want feedback and who trust what I'm saying. I do my best work when people have big ideas and they need a sounding board. They don't necessarily know how to make that happen. I do my best work with people who take action and implement and who are excited and feisty and cannot bear to keep quiet for longer. And my most successful clients are the ones who see me as their secret weapon, their cheerle their cheerleader, their guide, somebody who champions what they do when they might not have that from a partner, from an employee, from somebody else who might not get them. My magic is that I am attracting people who are like me. And in the beginning, I thought that was such a bad thing. I was like, no, I should be able to work with everybody. I want to work with anyone, but it doesn't let me do my best work and it does not give my clients the best results. And we are all here after the best results. I've drilled this down into five reasons you do not want to be for everyone. Number one, when you try to be for everyone, you blend in and it is hard to get noticed. Becomes very bland. You don't stand out. It's really hard to get clients when you don't know what you're known for. Number two, you compromise and you contort who you are and what you do more often. Number three, you sit back and you wait for someone else to tell you your next move. When you want to be for everyone, you can fall into the habit of letting them decide what happens next because you're willing to do anything to be liked. Number four, it is hard for others to refer or recommend you because you're so hard to describe. I think about this all the time. I ask my clients and claim your spotlight. You say, who do you want to be mentioned in a sentence with? She's like this person, or they remind me of this. If they can't identify who you fit with, it might be a sign that you're too generic. 
And finally, the fifth reason you don't want to be for everyone is because you can get caught up in trying to do it all and it gets harder and harder to specialize. Liz, any thoughts on those five reasons that you want to add on or share your experience with? The one that really sticks out to me is number four. It's hard for others to refer or recommend because you're hard to describe. This isn't necessarily a uh, a challenge that I have faced, but in speaking with others in the industry, I know it's a popular one. If you don't have like an elevator pitch of who you are, that's a problem and something that I think needs to be assessed and something that I know you talk about fairly often. The presentation you gave at the last iMedia conference really talked about like crafting a bio and thinking about who you are. I think that idea would hit home with a lot of people who need to maybe give that a second thought. And what's interesting is that in that talk, the whole goal is to get better clients, to get the right people in your community, which means your bio has to speak to them, right? I'm all about conversion? How do we turn lookers into buyers? How do you get buy-in? How is a stranger on the internet going to find this Instagram post and go, yes, I belong here. So I want to hear from our listeners. What is it about you, your company, the work that you do that makes it clear you aren't for everyone? I'm going to make it really clear right now. I am not for you if you are not ambitious. I am not the right fit for you. If you want to be content, right? If contentment is your goal, you're probably going to be unsatisfied. If you don't know why you're not for everyone, what a great opportunity to gather some data from your customers. Oh, for sure. Who would they recommend you to? What would they say about you? Because you can start to grab some trends and connect some dots that even if you don't know who you're specifically for, you can start to see what other people are saying. I often tell my clients, choose your top three customers, the people who come back all the time, the people who buy anything you're selling. And what are the connections that you can make between those people that help you understand who you really are for? I'm not for everyone because I am the most trustworthy. People do not have to worry when they hand me the keys to their social media accounts because I have wonderful ideas and they don't have any fear about the presence they're going to have online, even when they're not involved. So the person who wants to be involved every single day and wants to check in with you every time there's a post, that's not the right fit for you because that's not how you do it. No, I work best with people who give up control and are okay with me being the person that's taking over. Given what you know about me, it's quite funny to hear that and to think that I give up control. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But here's the thing. We've been working together for quite a while. I trust you. I I absolutely wouldn't work if you didn't. Correct. Correct. It it wouldn't work for either of us because I, I know you do good work and I also know that I invest in this part of my business so that I don't have to do it, right? Do what you're good at, pay someone else to do the rest. So it's important to find that fit. I have explicitly said in my proposals with the compliment, I have a sentence on the first page that says, if you are looking for a training manual that collects dust in your back room, I am not the right fit for you because that's not what we do. Same with the Amanda Wagner strategy sessions and claim your spotlight. If you want me to just tell you what you should do, 
and make a plan and you don't get any input, this is not the place for you because you're the one that's going to do the heavy lifting. I'm going to guide you through it. I want to hear what makes you stand out and what makes you specialized and great at what you do. Right now, as we are working from home, we are spending more and more time on the internet, which means that you have to communicate so clearly through your social platforms and every conversation you have that those words become more and more important. Speaking of spending so much time online and spending time at home, today's WWAWD, or what would Amanda Wagner do? The question comes from Andrea, who says, I have a workspace in my bedroom and have been working from home for the last year. It used to be exciting. I hear you, Andrea. It used to be exciting, and now I have lost all motivation. How can I bring some magic back? Andrea, great question. And I love the way you phrase this because there are definitely two ways to talk about this. How can I bring the magic back to the bedroom? How can I bring the magic back to my workspace in my bedroom? It is entirely understandable that you've lost some motivation. Something that seemed temporary or was maybe even fun in the beginning going, hey, I don't have to worry about a commute to work. I can roll out of bed in five minutes and be ready for a meeting. The blush has worn off. In order to bring some magic back to your workspace, I would think about how you can make it yours again. Is it reorganizing your office or your desk? For me, one of those things when I feel a little tired of my space, I get a new candle. It's no secret that I love fancy candles. So to add a fragrance, a picture on the wall, face a different direction. If you are at home with a partner, depending on what your setup is, can you switch workspaces for a week? This is something that Robin and I have done where I will work in the living room at his desk and he can take some time in my office so that I get a change of scenery. I will always be an advocate for taking breaks as well. So look at your workday. If you are spending a full eight hours sitting in the same place, it's going to get challenging and tiresome, and there's going to be a lot of dread in your day. Are there ways that you can take your laptop and work from the couch? Can you take a 15-minute break to read a book, to go outside? As the weather is getting nicer in this part of the world, I will go outside as long as my internet connection will let me. Even just for half an hour, it can make a big difference in your day. So I would recommend finding something that makes that workspace feel special again. A fragrance, a print or a picture, changing your desk orientation, getting a new chair, whatever that looks like for you to bring some of that magic back. Lately on Instagram, I have seen people using an ironing board as a portable desk so that they can still have some stability for their their laptop or or iPad that they're using, but being able to move it in different places throughout the house. Um, I'm going to take a second and WWAWD, let's go to WWLPD. Liz, you said you know what this feeling is. What would you suggest for Andrea? Oh man, it's, it is challenging to try and make each day feel a little bit different from the last. Something that I've been trying to play around with lately, and I 
have the luxury of being able to work whatever hours I want, but I teach some evenings. So I've been experimenting with kind of like what I'm calling a split shift. So I'll work in the mornings. Maybe I'll start a little bit earlier so I can get a good chunk of work done in the morning. And then I'll take like two or three hours off right in the middle of the day and then head back to work for a later shift. So that's kind of a way of mixing up the day. So I've been experimenting with that on the evenings that I teach. I've also experimented on on those same days when I'm teaching, doing kind of a weird on and off, like I'll work for an hour and then I'll watch, I'm re-watching the entire ER series. So I'll do an hour of work and then I'll watch an episode and I'll do like 90 minutes of work. And then I'll watch an episode as a way of kind of busting up the day. Again, I have the luxury of being able to play around with hours a little bit. To your point about switching locations with your partner, my partner's working at home right now and I've been taking the office in the morning and then he takes it in the afternoon uh, just so you have a change of scenery some way. I think this is something a lot of people are dealing with right now, Andrea. Hopefully there's some sort of nugget of an idea in here that will help you uh, bring some magic back because yeah, I feel your pain for sure. I think there's something to, to setting up your day, but also winding down from your day and that wind down routine. So for me, at the end of the day, I send session recaps and replay videos of the coaching and strategy calls that I've done that day. And I exclusively do that from the couch. I blow out the candle, I close the office door and I go and I do it somewhere else. And it's that wind down activity that this is the last half hour of my day. So if you're spending a large portion of your day in the bedroom, how can you separate the time that you spend working in your bedroom versus now it's time to go to bed? So having that differentiation um, hopefully helps. We've, we've got a couple strategies here that we have both tried, fingers crossed that pulling one of them helps to make work from home a little bit more bearable. Thank you so much for your question, Andrea. Please keep sending your questions in. You can send them via the website, theamandawagner.com, or as always, we are on the gram at theamandawagner. You can send a question uh, via the inbox. Fantastic. Thank you, Liz. Finally, one more time, we want to know what makes you stand out and makes it clear that you are not for everyone. Please join us on Instagram and tell us I am not for everyone because, or I want to work with people who what it's going to help some of the people who might find themselves feeling a little bland or generic. It's going to help drum up some ideas and give permission that it is okay to not be for everyone. If this conversation has you realizing that you are doing everything for everyone and that it's time to refocus and build the legacy you want, Claim Your Spotlight is just for you. Please connect with me through Instagram at the Amanda Wagner. Join a workshop called Claim Your Spotlight or find me at theamandawagner.com and we will talk. And if this conversation has you pumped about social media and wanting to hand the keys over to someone you can trust... I might be your person. You can visit my website, lizpittman.com or join me on Instagram at Liz Pittman. Thank you so much for joining us. This is episode 33. We are more than 25% of the way through 2021. Fingers crossed that this lights you up to make the next quarter even better. Wild. I had to kind of yeah. check the calendar. It is That's in wild. fact true. We are 25% of the way through. Oh, time flies. Well, we will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, we will see you on the internet.